Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to Prognosis. I'm Laura Carlson. It's day 242 since coronavirus was declared a global pandemic. Today, we have a special extended edition of the show. The coronavirus is on a rampage around the world. The view from Europe is especially alarming, with the surge in cases and deaths to levels not seen since last spring. And now the U.S. is entering its most dangerous period for the virus yet. Case rates are breaking records every day. Hospitalizations have reached a level never seen before, and more than 10 million people have been infected. Eight months into the pandemic, we are looking back at how exactly we got here. We're also looking ahead to what's next for the outbreak. In a wide-ranging interview, I asked reporters Michelle Fay-Cortez and Robert Langreth to break down what we can expect in the year ahead. They touched on everything from the dangers of the coming winter to the promise of an effective vaccine and the effect of a new presidential administration. With 10 million cases and exponential growth rates in so many areas, where does the U.S. and really the world stand in terms of COVID-19? We are seeing exponential growth in the United States, and we're trailing Europe still by a little bit here. So we can see what our future is going to look like, which is continued rising number of cases, followed by rising hospitalizations and deaths as well. It is not looking good in the United States. We do have some examples from Asia particularly, where they have done a much better job of locking down and keeping the virus under control, but we are not seeing that in Europe or the U.S. yet. As a result, we are going to need to start doing things in order to get the virus under some kind of a manageable condition The challenge is going to be that the virus is so widespread across every part of the United States and the European continent that the threats are coming for every person from every angle. So it's not just a large gathering of people that puts you at risk. You might just be at your own family's Thanksgiving dinner with 10 people, and one of those people can be infected. And there's still no way to know on the day whether anyone present at your table is infected. So almost everything that we're going to be doing throughout this winter is going to be a calculated risk. Yeah, I would say that this is exactly what epidemiologists and public health experts were worried about, that as we go uh, into the fall months and as it gets colder and drier and and more people spend more time indoors, the virus is going to be able to spread more easily and cases were going to rise. And this is exactly the scenario that epidemiologists were worried about or worried that would happen. And now it's upon us uh, and and exactly kind of the, the worst case scenarios are unfolding in terms of rapid transmission, rapid increase in hospitalizations and uh, an increase in deaths. 
deaths. We're closing in rapidly on a quarter of a million deaths uh, in the United States, and they're likely to go up from there. So we're just not in the position that authorities hoped we'd be in. The hope was that we'd get cases down lower over the summer and put us in a better position uh, for the fall, but that's not what happened. So many hopes have been pinned on the development and availability of a safe and effective vaccine to COVID-19. And of course, this week, there has been news of Pfizer's vaccine candidate reporting a very high 90 percent efficacy in its late stage trials. So what does this change, if anything, in terms of a timeline to a vaccine? This news about Pfizer's vaccine is quite dramatic It's much better than anybody was expecting early on when they were just starting to develop the immunization. Dr. Fauci said that it's extraordinary and it's been heralded by public health officials across the U.S. and the world. The idea that we could have something that's more than 90% effective at preventing healthy people from becoming infected with coronavirus is important not only for its ability to protect people, but it's also really critical to help people get through this next period, this very deadly and dangerous winter that we're looking at when people need to be inside their houses, social distancing, masking, and continuing to take these isolating practices that is hard for everyone to do. But there is light at the end of the tunnel here. We do know that there looks to be a vaccine that's on the horizon, and it would be really a shame if people weren't able to get through this last bit before we can start getting some help externally, getting some immunity from something other than falling sick. Yeah, so what's important to keep in mind, though, while this is undeniably promising and undeniably a good, you know, first step in terms of initial efficacy, there's just a lot we don't know yet. What we have right now is essentially a press release of top-line results. We have no scientific study or not even uh, presentation of the full scientific data. Not even Pfizer has seen that because the trial is still ongoing. So there's lots of questions that we still have left left about the safety of the vaccine and even the longevity of the effect. We really know next to nothing right now about the duration of the effect of this vaccine or even, you know, how it works in certain certain key subsets of the population, like the elderly or people with pre-existing co- conditions. We really don't know, you know, what is driving this very strong overall efficacy result. Is it being driven by younger or older patients? All these key details we don't know. So there are several steps that are going to happen uh, as this unfolds over the next several weeks. The first thing next week, we're looking for Pfizer to get two-month safety follow-up data from patients in this big trial. And that is a key metric that the U.S. Food and Drug Administration is looking for uh, in order to give an emergency authorization for any vaccine. Uh, Since vaccines are given to millions of healthy people, it's very, very important that vaccines have an extraordinarily high level of safety. And so this is is the next crucial data that Pfizer is going to get next week. And if that uh, goes as planned, then Pfizer should be able to apply for emergency use authorization to the FDA. And what the FDA says is they're not going to just review it behind closed doors in a back room. In addition to reviewing it internally, they're going to bring all the data into a public hearing with a committee of top advisors to the agency. This is a committee of outside doctors and experts at at universities around the country that are going to review all the data in public uh, to make sure that uh, there's confidence in a vaccine and the data before uh, any vaccine is granted an emergency authorization. And then the final step is 
there's going to, once this comes out, which could possibly happen in December, there's going to be a huge shortage of, of supply. There's not going to be remotely near enough supply relative to the population that could need it. So what's going to happen is a second committee of expert, outside experts and doctors affiliated with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, that committee is going to take all the data and decide basically who should get it first. And basically a very small percentage of the population is likely to have access to a vaccine first. It's probably going to be either people that are very high risk uh, for getting an infection, such as healthcare workers, or people who are very high risk uh, if they get infected of getting severe complications, such as the elderly. So it'll probably be, if it gets an emergency authorization, this vaccine, do not, you should not expect it to be available for you, know, you and me. This is a vaccine that's going to be available for a you know, very small subset of high-risk people initially. So Bob took us up to the point of distribution, but you have to realize that that's only the beginning of what's happening with the vaccine, especially with Many of these vaccines, you need those two doses. So you get your first dose, you wait three weeks or a month, then you get your second dose. So that's going to take some time. And then your body has to respond to the vaccine to create that immunity inside of you. That's also going to take some time. So we're looking to, you know, at least the summer before we start seeing substantial numbers of people who have been able to get the vaccine, who have been able to get the two doses, who have had their immune systems exposed and are now creating some kind of protection. And of course, at that point in the summer, we should be seeing a drop naturally in the amount of virus that's out there anyway, especially in the northern part of the country as people start going back outside. So the bottom line from where I'm sitting is that we're not going to know whether or not we've got this under control until about this time next year. That's where my mind is. In addition to vaccines, of course, we are also seeing the development of, of therapeutics, the approval of drugs to, to treat the symptoms of COVID-19. Those are in use now increasingly. How do you see these playing a role? How are these helping, if at all? Uh, so there's really only one drug that's com conclusively shown to like lower death rates from the coronavirus, and that's a very old drug, dexamethasone, a steroid drug, and that's and this helps uh, very people with very advanced uh, cases of, of the coronavirus uh, in the ICU who are having trouble breathing, and it's a it's a steroid that basically suppresses the immune system, and what is thought that at the late stages of the disease, what really happens is that the out of control immune system response to the virus become actually becomes harmful, and that's what puts people over the edge and actually kills them in the end. So this steroid, this old old drug, which is one of the drugs that uh, Donald Trump got uh, when he uh, was treated for coronavirus thought that this steroid can suppress the immune response and help keep people alive. And that was shown pretty definitively to lower the death rate in the University of Oxford study. That's the only drug that's shown to clearly lower the death rate. Now, there's another drug, of course, everyone's heard about remdesivir from Gilead Sciences, and that did is the first drug in the U.S. to officially be fully approved by the FDA for the coronavirus. But it, it's been shown mainly to uh, speed up uh, the rate of improvement, uh, the rate people get better who are hospitalized. But what it hasn't been shown to do uh, is uh, lower the death rate from the coronavirus. So uh, even though it got full approval, its contribution is still and is still controversial uh, over how well it works and what it's doing. But it did get full approval and is a widely used drug, even though its role is still somewhat controversial. 
while remdesivir might not be a Lazarus-like product, it does help people recover more quickly. It does help people get out of the hospital. And that is something that's worthwhile to have. So Bob, what's happening right now with antibody therapies? Yeah, so antibody therapies are a very important type of therapy. They're thought uh, to be a kind of a, a bridge to a vaccine, a bridge to get us to this very difficult period we're in right now until we get to the point where a vaccine uh, is widely available. And that's why there's excitement about that. And the first of these antibody therapies uh, just received emergency authorization from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. That's the antibody therapy from Eli Lilly that was developed in, in collaboration with a Canadian biotech company. And basically what it does is if you get it, can get it uh, early on enough uh, in your in your course of the disease, it can help keep you out of the hospital, keep you from going to the emergency room. And basically, if you, if you take it early, it can help it from progressing into a more severe case. But you do need to get it, be treated early on with this to have an effect. It didn't, in a trial, it did not work once you're in hospitalized patients. That was too late. Uh, and the problem we have right now with these is there are these antibodies are very hard to produce and are going to be in quite short supply. Lily was talking about shipping out its first 88,000 doses of this this week. And that is just not enough. So that that is a real problem. Uh, nobody anticipated uh, that we'd be in such uh, bad shape in terms of coronavirus cases, Yeah, I think, a few months ago. And so while this therapy helps, uh, there's just not enough of it to go around relative to the number of people that may benefit from it. I think that there is a silver lining when we're looking at the coronavirus outbreak, which is generally a very black, bleak, negative picture right now with rising cases, rising hospitalizations, rising deaths. And that is that we know an awful lot more now about how to treat those people. Not only that, we actually have things that can make a difference. And so in addition to to the drugs and the therapeutics, I wanted to ask about another method, um, for example, contact tracing. And especially now with the exponential growth rate of cases in the U.S., is contact tracing, in your opinion, even possible? I mean, how effective is this as, as a method of, of, let's say, approaching this pandemic or attempting to stem the, the further spread of COVID-19? Contact tracing is a challenge even in good times. It requires an awful lot of effort, both on the part of the government or the public health agency that's doing the contact tracing. And it requires an awful lot from the people who have been infected in terms of sharing where they've been. And then it also takes a lot of openness on the part of the people who are getting the information that they might have been exposed. And we have seen over and over again in our country that there is reluctance on every single part of this triad that will have to be overcome in order to make contract tracing rise to the level of its potential promise. We're seeing in some states, contact tracing isn't even being done. They're asking people to let their own sources, to let their own contacts know that they're infected. And where I am sitting, we're hearing 
a lot of people are saying, well, I know that I've been exposed, but I feel fine and I don't think that I've got it. So people are still going out and living their lives. Perhaps they're being a little bit more careful in terms of wearing masks and social distancing, but they're certainly not quarantining in their houses for 14 days the way that people have originally been asked. And we've heard over and over again that a lot of people aren't even willing to answer their phones for the health department. So if you don't know you are potentially exposed or you know you're exposed and you're not willing to do anything about it, or you know you're positive and you don't know everybody you might have been in contact with, it is just a recipe for disaster. So I am not personally hopeful about the ability for contact tracing to make a significant difference in this outbreak. Maybe I'm pessimistic. Contact tracing works best when you have a limited number of cases or you have, you know, clusters of significant numbers of cases linked to, you know, certain locations and certain places like a meatpacking plant or a cruise ship or, you know, a big wedding. Uh, but when you have cases that are just all over the place linked to all sorts of gatherings and huge numbers, if you or I get a case, you know, it could be from all, and we're, we've been out and about, it could be from all sorts of contacts. That makes contact tracing, you know, next to impossible. So it's a very difficult situation we're in right now with spread this widespread in many parts of the country. That makes contact tracing, you know, so much more difficult. So we can't forget about the political angle to this pandemic. President-elect Biden has already announced a COVID-19 task force. And so how do you think the Biden administration hopes to change the course of the U.S.'s response to COVID-19 in 2021? President-elect Biden really did run an awful lot of his campaign based on how to manage the coronavirus outbreak. It's clear that he wants to lead from the front with a national approach to everything from testing to tracing to masking to getting states and governors and local public health officials the information and the supplies that they need in order to get this virus under control. That is a huge shift from how President Trump approached the challenge It's going to be some dislocation that happens here as each individual state adjusts to President-elect Biden's approach. So President-elect Biden has announced a coronavirus task force. The three co-leads of this panel are David Kessler, Vivek Murthy, and Marcella Nunez-Smith. They are a very established group of leaders. David Kessler was the FDA commissioner appointed by President George Herbert Walker Bush back in 1990. Vivek Murthy was the former Surgeon General. Marcella Nunez-Smith is the founding director of the Equity Research and Innovation Center at Yale School of Medicine. So each of them are taking a different tact when it comes to coronavirus. The other person that we definitely should mention on this task force is Michael Osterholm, who's the director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. And he is, you know, a longstanding big thinker and top expert, you know, on infectious disease and in particular on potential future pandemics. And, you know, most things that he said about this pandemic from the beginning have been, you know, spot on as as anyone else in the country. So he is a real top expert to have on this panel. Biden has already said that he is committed to dramatically increasing the number of tests that are available and that are conducted and that are available easily and freely for the American 
public. Knowing whether or not you are infected is going to be the best way to help people implement these social distancing, non-pharmaceutical approaches to getting the virus under control. That is something that has to happen very quickly, and it has to be an all-of-government effort where steps are made in order to make sure that these tests are available to people and that they can get them easily and freely and then they can take action based on what they're finding. I personally believe that that will be the biggest impact that Biden would be able to have on this outbreak. Yeah, I think that on uh, vaccines, you know, the, that's one era where Biden and Trump aren't that far apart. They're all for vaccines. I think a Biden administration might try to just enhance the public uh, trust in a vaccine with some additional reviews, but that probably, you know, wouldn't make an enormous difference in the time frame of a vaccine. They just do some things to have some additional have some additional scientific review to make increase confidence in the vaccine and increase confidence that it's not political interference. But basically, you know, uh, the FDA has already been moving in that direction even under the Trump administration. So that the vaccine timeline probably there isn't an enormous difference between the administrations because basically once vaccines are seen, seen as effective and safe, there's you know, going to be tremendous incentive to get them out as quickly as possible, and uh, the end game there is just going to be how efficient is the distribution system. You know, in terms of the rest of the virus and social distancing, I think you know Bi- Biden administration certainly will make much more of an effort uh, to have you know broader national policies and or guidelines you know on. Uh, what to do in terms of social distancing and mask wearing. Biden, I'm sure, will use the bully pulpit to promote whatever his recommendations are. And you know, and if people follow that, that could help. There's no doubt about it. President Biden might move to a nationwide mask mandate. President Biden might move towards nationwide shutdowns, restrictions, recommendations that would further these non-pharmaceutical interventions all of these things that we have not seen President Trump being willing or wanting to do. President Trump's focus on reopening the economy will almost definitely be dialed back under President Biden. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know, we've been talking about what had been projected for the fall. That certainly seems to be coming to pass. But in terms of what public health officials are looking ahead to the end of 2020, the beginning of 2021, have projections changed at all? And what are we to expect now in the coming weeks and months? Well, public health authorities, you know, expect this to be 
rough next few months in terms of the coronavirus, because what you're seeing in the northern parts of the country, such as Wisconsin, that got the coldest weather first, that's going to increasingly, those rates have the potential to spread to the rest of the country. That means, you know, we're going to have to make it through this winter, uh, essentially on social distancing, mask wearing, and cleanliness, you know, other basic measures alone, and perhaps with some help from some of these antibody drugs. But even those will be in very, very short supply. So, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be a rough, difficult, you know, a winter. And we have to kind of, you know, I think, hunker down for it. Public health officials are saying that we're going to see these rising rates continue for at least the rest of November and December. And then they're saying that things might start coming down, that November and December are going to be really bad. But in all honesty, I personally don't see a change coming. The way that the virus works, we all know the way the virus works. It goes from one person to the next. And as long as there are vulnerable hosts to get infected, the virus will continue to pass from person to person. And the number of people, while horrifying at 10 million infections in the United States, you have to remember we have 330 million people here. We're talking about herd immunity at the 60 to 80% level. Even if you made it really simple and low for the math and said 50% people have to be infected in order to reduce the risk, that's still 165 million people. There's millions and millions of people who are out there who are vulnerable to this virus. What's become clear in recent months is that the vast, vast majority of the U.S. population is still vulnerable to this virus. Uh, there was a study uh, out the other day that estimated perhaps 20% of people in New York City had been exposed to the virus. So that's New York City is one of the most heavily exposed parts of the country to the virus uh, because of the just the incredible epidemic it had You know, early on. It started very early and raged for in April and in early May until it was finally gotten under control. But even there, in this dense, crowded part of the country, it's still only 20%. That's really saying something about, you know, the low levels, the much lower levels likely in the rest of the country. So most people, you know, are still vulnerable. And there's just a lot of people could spread to still. When we're talking about case rates of 100,000 new cases a day, just remember reports of hospitalizations and deaths, those are, those are lagging indicators. Those lag that a lot. The death reports are several weeks behind that. And it looks like, according to the data from the COVID tracking project, an all-time peak for hospitalizations in the whole pandemic. So that is really, really worrisome. Uh, the one good thing is that Intensive care units and hospitals are better at keeping people alive now. There's better care. Uh, so the death rate uh, has gone down because of things like the steroid dexamethasone and just generally better hospital care. With this many people who are still potentially vulnerable to the virus, we do know that we can flatten the curve and we can get the virus under control with our social distancing efforts because we've done that already. We know that it can be done. But think about what we had to do in order for that to happen. My expectation is that we're going to continue seeing these cases increase until we start seeing some pretty substantial lockdowns. And I think that is something that public health officials and politicians have not been willing to say. But in my mind, I think that we're either going to accept a phenomenal number of deaths and increasing cases or we're all going to spend a pretty significant amount of our time inside our houses again this winter. What do you think, Bob? 
Right. I mean, if you look at Europe, a lot of countries in Europe, they're already, you know, reimposing various types of lockdowns, somewhat temporary, and they may they vary from country to country. But you see those happening again in, you know, major European countries, which are ahead of us in terms of the surge. And uh, in the U.S., generally speaking, there's been little appetite for that. It's even temporary ones that are limited to, say, you know, bars and restaurants and, and, and some other types of businesses. It's just not clear what the appetite is, but it does seem clear, you know, without you know, some more measure of intense social distancing, yes, that uh, hospitalizations and deaths are going to continue to rise, unfortunately. Michelle, you already mentioned uh, Thanksgiving, but do you think there's a willingness in the U.S. to essentially not have a a normal holiday season? Um, What can we do or what can government officials do to try and tamp down some of these, these more worrying trends that we're seeing with the holidays coming up? We already are seeing people say, make sure that you don't put your loved ones, your family members, your friends who are at high risk in a dangerous situation over the holidays. You don't want to bring somebody who is elderly, overweight, has other health conditions into your home and expose them to even small groups of people because you could be transmitting the virus. That's something that we're seeing already because the virus is so widespread across the country that even small groups of people are including people who are asymptomatically positive and you have no idea that they are putting your loved one at risk. That being said, just like the point we were making earlier, that people are tired of social distancing, they're tired of wearing masks, they want to get together with their loved ones. Thanksgiving is a huge issue in the United States. People want to be with their families. That's what this is all about. And it's already been, you know, months and months and months of isolation. People really want to get together. It's going to be an interesting phenomenon what people decide to do, to what extent they want to balance having their families and their friends together versus keeping their families and friends safe. It's hard to tell what's going to happen, you know, during Thanksgiving. I imagine this country is so split uh, that that it'll just be a different situation in different states and among different groups of people. And some parts of the country may be much more cautious than other parts of the country. So, yes, if there are very large Thanksgiving gatherings uh, where people haven't been cautious, that's almost certain to increase the spread of the virus if people don't tone down their Thanksgiving celebrations and, you know, keep them to, you know, smaller groups than usual or find ways to do effectively, you know, quarantine or isolate ahead of those gatherings if they are doing a somewhat bigger gathering, especially in cases where there's a lot of interstate travel. That is often what happens around these holidays is that there's interstate travel. People come from different states for a big Thanksgiving dinner somewhere. What that does with the virus is that, you know, spreads the virus from one part of the country, um, one county to the next. So the more people you have at your Thanksgiving celebration coming from the more disparate parts of the state or different states, you know, the more likely it is to spread the virus just by the sheer mathematics of the likelihood someone has acquired something and they don't know it yet. That was Michelle Fay-Cortez and Robert Langreth. And that's it for our show today. For coverage of the outbreak from 120 bureaus around the world, visit Bloomberg.com slash coronavirus. And if you like the show, please leave us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It's the best way to help more listeners find our global reporting. The Prognosis Daily Edition is produced by Topher Forges, Jordan Gaspure, Magnus Henriksen, and me, Laura Carlson. 
Today's main story was reported by Michelle Fay Cortez and Robert Langreth. Original music by Leo Sidrin. Our editors are Rick Schein and Francesca Levy. Special thanks to John Fraher and Creighton Harrison. Francesca Levy is Bloomberg's head of podcasts. Thanks for listening. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.